Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation that I'm going to call Proud to Know You 3, Beyond Superdome. For those who've been listening lately to Inappropriate Conversations, you know this is a direct callback to Inappropriate Conversations number 212, released very early in September, and called Intersections in the Neighborhood. That was recorded live before an audience in New Orleans for Pride 48 this year in August, just about a week before the podcast was released. And so this is going to be a look back at the Pride 48 event itself, but first, I want to do a callback to the most recent episode, Inappropriate Conversations 213, Paying It Forward, released just a week ago at the end of September, because I started that show and really ended that show with what can only be called a rant about some of the shenanigans going on related to the Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. And I kind of want to pick up there, because a lot has happened since I recorded that, And many of the things that I said then are still right on target and relevant. But I wanted to take a slightly different angle at it and actually perhaps even let Judge Kavanaugh speak for himself. Uh, Believe me, it's not going to go well. So really two or three ideas that are milling about for this particular show. One is a quick touch base on the Kavanaugh nomination. The background information for that is pretty well handled in Inappropriate Conversations 213. Also, maybe trying to walk a mile in the shoes of some of the people involved in this particular, you know, current event news of the day by looking back to anything from my high school that I think could be potentially relevant. I have, in other words, been walking a mile in my neighbor's shoes the past few days, and it might be worth talking about. But from there, I'm going to turn my attention toward Pride 48 in New Orleans this year because the event was, a, in my opinion, a spectacular success. And I feel very strongly that I'm likely to participate yet again in the future. That also will tie in somewhat to the different drummer in a very indirect way. We'll get there when we get there. couple of sound clips coming in this show. Uh, one giving the different drummer her own voice. And another one right up front here giving Brett Kavanaugh his own voice. Because I feel like there's an effort, probably by a lot of people... Uh, especially politically conservative people, trying to manage the cognitive dissonance of how persuasive Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was in her testimony on that morning before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And clearly, as I've been saying from the very beginning, there is almost no reason whatsoever to doubt that this woman is absolutely, factually, honestly true in saying she believes she was assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh. So how do you manage that if you've already predecided in your mind that Brett Kavanaugh simply has to be appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and therefore anything that stands in the way of that is some kind of you know, egregious injustice or something along those lines? How do you keep those ideas in your head? And I offered a moment of generosity online through my social media. I can be found uh, at IC underscore Greg on Twitter, and Inappropriate Conversations has a Facebook page listed as a cause. And along the way, I think what I might have suggested was that it is actually possible to believe that 
Uh, Ford is describing the events exactly as they occurred and that she is correct in her recollection that it was Mark Judge and Brett Kavanaugh who were in the room when it happened. And at the same time, believing that Brett Kavanaugh is being honest in his angry, defiant responses, that he has no recollection of it. That those two things are not necessarily at odds with each other. After all, if this kind of thing was somewhat commonplace in his world and in the way he lived his high school years as a private school, all-boys school kind of guy, then why would he remember one summer from the next or one party from the next? He simply has no recollection of it because what he did did not matter to him as much as it did to her. That is what I call the unconditional positive regard version of looking at this story. It isn't a he said, she said, in my opinion, but the closest you can get to painting it that way is this, to say, yes, he attacked her, yes, she remembered it, no, he doesn't. And what do we do with that? My guess is the right answer is, you find a better nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. You look around the room at the people who are interviewing this particular nominee with you and ask the same question that I've asked before in uh, hiring decisions with folks like HR in the room and, and friends and colleagues who've interviewed the same set of potential candidates and say, is this the best we can do? Really? Maybe we shouldn't hire yet. Maybe we should go back and do some more recruiting and come up with a candidate we believe in instead of choosing the lesser of evils or the best available table at the restaurant, even if it's in the middle of the kitchen or something. So there is a potential at odds here, though. And I think I'm being unfair to Brett Kavanaugh by simply dismissing his worldview as he doesn't recall this and doesn't think he should be held accountable for it. His worldview actually, in that same hearing on that same day, sounded a little bit more like this. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit, fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. This is a circus. So let me do what I always do in debate and grant Brett Kavanaugh the full extent of grace that's humanly possible and say, okay, Brett Kavanaugh, you believe this. Let's say you're right. Let's hold you accountable for the full weight of being right in your point of view. It really comes down to this. If you're a U.S. senator, and now it's no longer a Judiciary Committee senator, but any one of the senators, because... This thing is still proceeding toward a vote. No one has, in my opinion, had the the wisdom or decency to say, I think we need a different hiree here, that we probably shouldn't be extending an offer to this particular candidate for a job just because he's the one in front of us. But if it's going to proceed and all the other senators need to look at this, then what I would say is that if Kavanaugh's point of view is right, then... Uh, I'm not going to share any clip from Dr. Ford. I think that anyone who is unaware of her testimony should go find it for themselves online. But that's the juxtaposition I'm going to do. Her account of what happened and the answers that she gave to all who asked. And this quote from him, his, this more or less manifesto of his. If he's right, then, U.S. Senators, we must immediately 
urged the Department of Justice to arrest Dr. Ford for not just perjury, if he is right, Judge Kavanaugh, but for treason. She is clearly the linchpin, the key witness, if you will, the first tumbling block in a conspiracy to overthrow the United States government by interfering with our balance of powers. She is part of a a group of left-leaning people who have made up false claims and allegations and leveled leveled them against this particular judge to try to stymie the agenda of President Trump and to do so to get revenge for his surprise victory in the national elections in 2016 and to extract some sort of pound of flesh on behalf of the Clinton family. If all of that that is true, if she is part of a conspiracy, if she is lying, and if this is being fully funded by people who are antagonistic to our way of life as some sort of left-leaning group looking to overthrow the U.S. government, then she is a traitor. She must be arrested as soon as humanly possible, and the death penalty must be on the table, as it should always be, in cases of treason, at least long enough to use it as leverage to extract from her all of the people who have joined her in this conspiracy and are trying to, well, are using their funding and using their lies and perhaps even paying for acting coaches to make her somehow so unimaginably convincing. That's what we're saying. Anything less makes Brett Kavanaugh, to one degree or another, a liar. This is his point of view. This is his testimony before the United States Senate. And if he is wrong about it, if he is merely mistaken about it, it is outrageous for a judge who presumably should be presenting some sort of judicial decorum and at all times making sure that he is free of any conflicts of interest to represent every single person, every single citizen of this country equally. If he's wrong in any way, he's got he's to step down and remove himself from this nomination. He perhaps should have his current judicial appointment under some serious scrutiny about whether or not he should continue in that role as well. That's if he's wrong. Now, if he's right, I think we need to be throwing somebody in jail without bail because she's one of the single most dangerous people in the history of our country. So you got to ask yourself, if you are someone in Congress, particularly the United States Senate, do you really believe that Dr. Ford should be put in jail? Do you really believe that she's some pawn in a left-wing conspiracy to overthrow the United States government and undermine our way of life and compromise the integrity of the judiciary? Because if you don't, If you think that she was being honest and credible and telling her story truthfully, and you weigh that evenly, or try to, against what Kavanaugh shared, which I've quoted, let him speak for himself here in the beginning of this show, then I think there really is no choice but to say that Brett Kavanaugh has no place whatsoever in the United States Supreme Court, and he probably should not continue to have a place anywhere in the United States judiciary. Now, that's my point of view. Because I don't see any reason to lock Ford up and throw away the key. I don't believe that she's a traitor. I don't even think she's committed perjury. I think she's told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, as she recalls it, to the best of her ability. I can't even make the same claim about Kavanaugh. Because for the most part, all we heard was paranoid, delusional ranting. So what should we have heard instead is a fair question. And I mentioned this somewhat in the last show, that even even from a political maneuvering perspective, it would have been very wise for him to have early on been extremely outspoken in protecting his own accuser from the kind of threats and violence that she has received. 
But I saw something online today as I'm recording that I thought was very interesting and perhaps worth sharing. I'm not sure that I agree with 100% of every single idea here, but it's so close. Now, independently, before I saw this post from uh, Magamama, from the at Magamamas on Facebook, they have a Facebook page. I'm not a frequenter of the page. I only saw this because a friend of mine, Tom from Austria, posted it on his wall. I saw it that way. And so independently, I came up with this idea that the right way to handle this as a judge, in a, especially a judge seeking confirmation to a different post, would be to, as much as humanly possible, rise above and to put yourself in the shoes of the individual and to, again, treat everybody who treat everybody as if they're innocent of lying and manipulating you until you've really, truly proven otherwise with perhaps a thorough law enforcement investigation. Maybe in this case, because of the circumstances, the FBI, I don't know. So there are ways of handling this, which were botched from the beginning by Kavanaugh. But here is a, a more positive, constructive suggestion of what could have happened. Now, don't get me wrong. As I read this, I personally believe that it's far too late. You can't come back now and be magnanimous, especially after that display of, quote, testimony, unquote, before the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. Here are the words of the Magamamas. And putting words into the mouth of Kavanaugh, again, trying to be helpful, trying to say what, what should he have done instead? What would have been the right approach from him? Quoting, I am so incredibly sorry for the pain I have caused this woman, that this memory would be with her after all these years. I don't remember this night in question, but I am mortified to think that I might have done this. I don't know because I binge drank too much in high school. I didn't know how to handle all the pressure. It got to me. I come from a religious family and didn't know how to deal with sexuality. No one did. I'm ashamed when I look back. I have deep regrets. From now on, I will be a part of the solution so that my daughters don't have to grow up in an environment like my high school. I will do whatever it takes to change the way young men and young women come of age in this culture. The Magamamas. That is pretty close to the ideas that I was expressing, call it about a week ago at the previous recording of an Inappropriate Conversations podcast, saying that it would have been nothing for him. It would have been so easy for him to stand up and even perhaps with a insincere threat to remove his name from consideration for the Supreme Court if the right-wing trolls didn't immediately stop harassing this woman and her family. And this is a similar answer. We've got a, a he-said-she-said mentality, which is always by its nature a false dichotomy, but she clearly remembers this. It's clearly caused her great pain. He clearly doesn't remember it. His lack of memory doesn't change the reality that we all live in. So by just being a good judge in every sense of the word and looking at her pain and his lack of memory, and instead of interpreting it as some vast left-wing conspiracy, maybe interpreting it as an opportunity to say, hey, I would have apologized a long time ago but I didn't know. Now, what if that's not true? What if he never would have apologized under any circumstances whatsoever because he doesn't feel the least bit bad about what he did and maybe he'd even do it again if he could go back all those years and relive those high school glory days? I don't want to put words in his mouth. I'm trying to start this show by looking back at the same question with some unconditional positive regard. But the closest I can get to unconditional positive regard 
is saying, man, you had an opportunity to do the right thing here. Why didn't you do it? So if I were to attempt to put my myself in his shoes, the question that I've got to ask myself is, well, first, I didn't come from an affluent private school, and I didn't have the means, the wealth it would have taken to have been partying all summer long. I didn't have weekends where I was unavailable because I was at the beach. I'm also not naive enough to believe, even for one second, that even a full-time job or an extra full-time, an overtime full-time job during the summer for a high school kid rules out the possibility that that kid could go to the movies with his friends or go to parties or even obtain alcohol to do underage drinking. You see, because when I line up my story, I did underage drinking. I didn't do underage drinking anywhere near as, quote, well, unquote, as some of the people who are, you know, alleged to have been party to this situation all those years ago were. I was usually on the the shallow end, the cheap end, the whatever you could get end of of trying to uh, find out what beer tasted like and was all about, you know, for want of a better word. But I do remember once... It's been an element of stories on at least one past Inappropriate Conversation show. Inappropriate Conversations, uh, I think maybe 102, was dealing with, well, how did I drink when I drank? How did I get to where I am today? What's my relationship with alcohol today? Because I've said, even from the very beginning in the first, say, 20 episodes or so of this podcast, that I've never used an illegal drug. That's not who I am. That's not what I do. But I do drink, and I did start fairly young. There was one episode in high school, and it is the only one that I believe this can honestly be said about, where I was in one of those walking blackout situations. I have drifted off to sleep after coming home from a night as a freshman in college, you know, out at the bars, trying to celebrate while the laws in the state I lived in still permitted 18-year-olds to go to bars. But I don't recall ever being in another situation where I was mobile and functioning, but not fully conscious because of the kind of blackout situation that's being alleged in this Kavanaugh-Ford scenario. And as I've told the story before, I won't recount it in, in any great detail because it's on past show or two. But as I've told the story before, I came to because there was a, a couple from my high school, at least a year or two older than I was, who were very angry with me. I had annoyed them greatly in my state of not being with it enough to be aware or have recollection. And I still to this day have no idea what it was that I did. I just know that the uh, the woman of the this couple was concerned and the the guy was angry. And in the midst of our interactions with each other, she said, I'm fine, cool down, and was making sure I was okay. How many fingers am I holding up? All that kind of thing. And when it was clear that I'd come back to my senses and she had my attention. She just said, never do that again, and walked away. I have no idea what that is. I will say this. I don't think the story has any conceivable parallel to what Dr. Ford has testified to about Brett Kavanaugh and Mark Judge. And the reason I say that is in part because I didn't find the woman even remotely attractive. Um, I knew who she was. We went to the same high school. We were at the same party because we were part of the same high school. There was absolutely no uh, interest between the two of us. Let's put it that way. And I also am quite sure that, that her boyfriend would have been more than just annoyed. He would have been violent had I actually done anything unacceptable um, to, for, with, or about his girlfriend. I think most likely the theory that I've latched onto all these years later is that 
I was wandering around aimlessly, not sure where I was or what I was doing, and probably opened up a door and went into a bedroom that they were trying to use consensually. Seems like the best explanation for the circumstances. But I guess what I'm saying is I do have at least one story from my past of walking around, more than a little dazed and confused, and perhaps not fully able to speak with authority on what I said or did or what happened that night. I was 15, I believe, in this scenario, definitely too young to drive, and didn't obtain the alcohol on my own. I was I was at a party to help the drummer set up the drum kit, and the thanks I got for apparently doing an excellent job was what the last third or so of his uh, fifth of gin, which I drank. So there's a story there, but I can't imagine if this were to come back to me from that same sort of unexpected angle that you could certainly understand Brett Kavanaugh being surprised if everything he says about not remembering it is true and everything she says about what happened is true. It's just that his angry, almost violent response is completely inconsistent with those facts. Because I think if made aware of something he did when he was you know, blackout drunk, I think you'd expect at a minimum for him to be just a little bit more conciliatory. And it's that lack of conciliation, I think, is really the problem. And the impossibility of reconciliation, to me, is a huge barrier to taking him seriously as an impartial judge of anything. It's history. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 B.C., until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events, that that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors, behind the backs of everyone else, steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? At the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. But that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about more happy things, like the recent event Pride 48 in New Orleans. Uh, in 2015, I went to Pride 48 in Las Vegas. It was my first Pride 48 event, and uh, it went well. I had a good time. I was nervous because I was going to do a podcast live for the very first time. Uh, and it was a tight 30-minute format, so I, I took some comfort in that. I was on the first day and the first block at the end of a block, which back then, 2015, that was perfect for me, too. Because it meant that if the inherent seriousness of my show took the mood down and, and sucked some of the joy out of the room, for one of a better, that was my fear anyway, that at least there would be a lunch break right after it and people could start afresh and start anew. Because both the uh, Walk the Earth podcast, which was what I recorded in 2015, and the Inappropriate Conversations podcast, which is the one from here just a month or so ago, uh, these are serious shows. It's a pretty rare thing that an Inappropriate Conversations podcast breaks into any sort of comedy. I was also worried this year, and going into it, part of it was because I was going to be late in the in the process, as it turned out. So it wasn't uh, get in, get out, and, and if I was going to bring the mood down, the mood would, would have plenty of time to come back. And also it was going to be an inappropriate conversation show, because this particular lineup for this year's Pride 48 event um, was all sort of 55-minute blocks. Everything was in the hour format, not the 30 minutes. So I knew that going in, though. In fact, I probably knew that at, at the end of August in 2015. 
that if there was going to be a next time, whether that be one year later or a few years later, that the next time probably needed to be inappropriate conversations. When I look at uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org, this podcast is the flagship of that, and Walk the Earth will always be, to some degree, the subsidiary. So it only made sense with the icon saying inappropriate conversations that the next time I did a live show at Pride 48, it should be this format. But that created some real challenges for me, because first, uh, I don't do this live for a reason. I like being able to hit the pause button, and anybody who's listened to either one of those two live events in Pride 48 knows that sometimes my emotions can run away with me. Um, I feel much more comfortable if I'm dealing with something that's serious and that I care deeply about, to where even if it's not everybody's cup of tea, there's a moment where someone could say, well, hey, at the very least, he's passionate about that, and that is in and of itself an inherently good thing. But then, you know, your emotions take, get, you can get carried away. And then, well, how do you hit the pause button when you're live before an audience? And what you release as the podcast is going to be from the, the first time it hits play to the last time when hopefully there's applause at the end and the theme music is fading out. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to do this with a guest. And in the interest of full 100% transparency, I didn't have a clue how I wanted to manage that because uh, I sort of let myself not think about it for a couple of years. Between 2015 and early in 2018, it just hadn't been a consideration. But maybe the first thought that jumped to my mind when I was thinking about, how do I make this work? Not having a topic, because the topic was really obvious to me um, the last time in 2015. The Supreme Court had just passed the gay marriage ruling, marriage equality, rather, and uh, some friends online had been having conversations. Some of them had been very ugly. And one particular person stepped out with something that I thought was really uh, positive and powerful. I knew I, I needed to share it if I could. So that one kind of took care of itself. But here, you know, one of the things I do when I'm crafting an inappropriate conversations podcast is try to say, well, if I don't have a topic, who's the different drummer? Because maybe that can drive the topic. If I've always wanted to name Johann Sebastian Bach as a different drummer... If I haven't done it, it's because it hasn't connected with a topic yet. The two have not been joined for me. So I didn't have a real uh, game plan at that point in time for a different drummer. But I began thinking that maybe the right thing to do would be to let that come to me, either the topic or the different drummer from whoever was my guest, whoever was going to help me out by being on another microphone for an actual conversations show. My first thought was Babalu from the That's So Babalu podcast, who was in attendance at the last Las Vegas event all those years ago and did an interstitial and, and was, you know, he was very much a big part of my experience of that event because I'd never met him before. But uh, it turns out that the Walk the Earth podcast as a topic spoke to him. He shared that. That meant the world to me. So there was a, there was a bit of a connection there. And obviously, uh, Babalu, for anybody who knows Pride 48, is directly connected with the uh, Via Marriage to the Pod is My Co-Pilot podcast, which frankly in the last, say, four years has really become one of my favorites. So there was a connection there. And one of the things he said when talking about stage fright, both in the hospitality suite and also during an interstitial, was how much he wanted to be on the stage participating, you know, doing a show behind the mic, so to speak, but not really feeling like he had the confidence to do it. And as soon as 
the stage fright kicks in and takes over and convinces you to bail out, you kind of regret it. And I'm still to this, to this day, uh, knowing that Babalu couldn't make it to this year's event in New Orleans from really good personal reasons. I was still thinking about him at points during the event because I realized that I'd finally had everything come together for me at the last minute. Thinking of Mr. Rogers as a different drummer only because of the Francois Clemens story and coming to peace with the idea of kind of doing that together as a joint different drummer. And then it just being so obvious to me, the right person to discuss this with was Nicole Villacrez, the uh, one of the hosts of Greetings from Nowhere. And if you've, you know, if you've listened to that show, you know what I'm talking about. I can't imagine not having the conversation I did with Nicole if it hadn't been done on the stage it probably would have happened over breakfast. It was going to happen, right? So it all came together very quickly. But even then, I was thinking to myself, wasn't there a moment somewhere, May or June maybe, where I was deciding for myself, just like Babalu did all those years ago, do I just bail on this? You know, is this is this just not going to be the right time for me to be on stage? And while wrestling with that, it occurred to me that I had come that close to feeling exactly the same way this year that Babalu did in 2015, because I really would have regretted it had I not followed through. I mean, possible world theory, you know, kind of gives me this notion that I, I could look and say, well, things happened exactly as they did and it wasn't that great. From my perspective, it absolutely was, meaning that to have bailed out on it would have been terrible in ways that I never would know because I would have been living in the possible world where I bailed out. But maybe there would have been sort of a funk, sort of a pensive mood that could have taken over, not just because I would have felt a little bit bad about missing an opportunity, but maybe because there's a possible world out there that I might have been subconsciously aware of, of how well it went and how good it could have been had I followed through. So my first thought was, let's just give Babalu a stage. Maybe the Inappropriate Conversations podcast gets its topic from whatever he wants to talk about by making sure that there's an opportunity to spend time with him and to spend time with him on stage behind a microphone, I think it would have worked. Again, personal life issues got in the way, didn't happen. And then on my own, I sort of found my way to a topic through the different drummer and the obvious co-host. And so that all went so well. And I also had time off work in, in the lead up to Pride 48. So for more than a week... Before getting to New Orleans, I had a lot of time to sort of to think and to reflect, to kind of prepare, to raise the questions I needed to raise so that I had time when we got to New Orleans to to get Nicole on the same page so that she would know what I was thinking so I wasn't going to sort of hit her out of left field um, behind the microphone in front of everybody. And it all worked out. My general approach to things is I sometimes have to resist the temptation to lead. And it's not like if I feel like I'm necessarily any sort of born leader. This is certainly not, I'm certainly not bragging. It's the opposite. I can, I can be a little bit headstrong. And one of the really nice things about this event is that I know that my voice is inherently a side voice. When you look at initials, LGBTQI, those aren't, those aren't me. I don't even believe that the A stands for ally. To me, that's uh, has always stood for asexual. So uh, there's there's no string of letters where it's about me. And so there's a voice in the back of my head, and I don't know whether it's previous different drummer Max Licato or someone else, maybe my parents even, saying, hey, it's not always going to be about you. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just be 
the right person in the crowd, somebody in the crowd, somebody who's there to support. And I'm, I come to this, uh, from a pride 48 perspective as a fan of podcasting. And I'm sure I'm not alone, but the overwhelming majority of people in attendance do fit in to uh, a gay or bi or perhaps even lesbian connecting point. And I'm coming in there without that. But Pride 48 is both the combination of people who are either in the LGBT community directly or allies and supporters of that, but also enthusiasts of podcasts. So I come to it from the enthusiast of podcast perspective. And it made it really easy for me because nothing had to be, nothing hinged on me or my participation, I guess would be the way I would word that. And it was a joy in a lot of ways to watch this event come together from kind of that angle that I was more than happy to, to move some chairs around or to, uh, to go run and fetch some, you know, tape or something. But most, if not all the things I was engaged in, I wasn't the decision maker, which was fantastic. The other thing is that my wife and I had really planned fairly well for this. So from a budget perspective, we were in good shape and I didn't really have to worry about, I wasn't having to worry about any of the financial questions. We'd uh, signed up in advance for the things we were going to participate in. We'd signed up not just ourselves in advance, but also our friends in advance. So I had made arrangements for our niece who lives in the New Orleans area to be signed up and participating in anything that she might conceivably want to do. I got her and my wife's friend from high school, who's come to both of the two events I've attended, got them registered, got them signed up, made sure that there were just no, there wasn't any challenge to participation, whether it be financial or time-wise with any of that. And that worked out really nice because before the very first show, before the Friday 5 p.m. kickoff recording, we would have had a couple things under our belt already. A group dinner Thursday night at a very nice restaurant, a riverboat cruise and lunch for the Friday early afternoon. And I was able to basically deal with the consequences of, well, what if one of those two friends of ours aren't going? What if my niece couldn't make it? And I was very conscious of saying, if it, if that happens and we've got a ticket that's not going to be used, let's make sure we find a way to give it to somebody. And the thing about Pride 48 that I think people who listen to a lot of the shows probably know already is that there really isn't a better example of hospitality than Big Fatty. Uh, Big Fatty doesn't just play a role in the pink carpet each time I've been and the opening show and be the first formal podcast, the actual first show in the series of podcasts, in part because he's just got a big heart about rolling out the red carpet. And I knew the second I realized we had a ticket we didn't need for one of those events, that all I needed to do was tell Big Fatty he'd take care of it, and he absolutely did, which was which was wonderful because I thought, you know, the last thing I want to do is be somebody who's creating any drama for this, um, having a ticket I don't need or needing a ticket I don't have or any of that sort of stuff. Because the beauty of it is that if I don't want to participate in hitting the, uh, as they call it, the horror bars with Big Fatty, which obviously I don't, it's not going to be my thing, it's not a big deal. No drama. Went to the casino that night, as I recall, because the... Uh, Holiday Inn Superdome in New Orleans is just close enough to all of these things that once you figure out how to navigate your way around, it is either a really inexpensive Uber or Lyft drive to get from place to place or a walk. Yeah, during the middle of the afternoon, hot though it can be, the walk isn't all that concerning. I did make sure that when I left the casino early, the one night that I was there with my wife and her friend, 
I did kind of make sure that they didn't even question for a moment the idea of taking a cab or an Uber to get back because it's downtown in one of the largest cities in the south in the middle of the night. Can't guarantee that it's going to be safe, or at least you can't guarantee it's going to be a savory situation. So that's sort of how I manage it. Nothing depends on me. No one has to entertain me. Uh, it, I'm not there to uh, to drive any decisions or to lead. Just sort of there to do exactly what it sounds like you'd be there to do if you went to a podcasting exposition. Attend and watch the podcasts. I missed a few moments of maybe one of the shows on the first day. Not sure why that was, as a matter of fact. I think I had to go back to the room for some reason. And um, attended the breakfast for Saturday, the, the next day, and rolled right in. One exception, though, is that I did miss a little bit of one show uh, because I needed to take some time out to prepare. Uh, I had a podcast the next day. It was going to be live. I was nervous about it. I needed I needed to be prepared for that. But I also was basically, on, let's just say, on a, on a roll. Uh, greetings from nowhere. Gayish. Mad Dingo. Foul Monkeys. Don't Quit Your Day Job. Not missing these shows. And it just turned out that when Nicole and I got together to do the final prep work for the show the next morning, we picked an hour where the host of the show actually walked up to Nicole and said, bye, Nicole, you probably don't want to be in the room for this because it's one of the more explicit shows, as I understand it, one of the more explicit shows in the network. Even then, taking 45 minutes to compare notes, get ready, get confident for the next morning because it was after her Greetings from Nowhere recording was over and you know, pretty late the night before when our show was going to be in the first part of the day on the last day. The good news is, I did get back in the room in time to see the Little Aussie Battler podcast. I don't believe in playing favorites, and I'm not playing favorites here. And it would be inaccurate for me to say that this was a first time for me. It really wasn't. So that idea of uh, the live streaming event every June, kind of trying to find a show you're going to be watching or taking in for the very first time. For me, Gayish would be a good example of that this year. Uh, enjoyed that show and its humor way more than I might have expected. So I, I'm not a newcomer to the Little Aussie Battler podcast, but I will say that he carved that up into two parts, released it in two different podcasts here just lately. If you find the Little Aussie Battler podcast online, and frankly, Pride48.com is a great way to go looking. If you just wanted to find a directory for these RSS feeds, it's right there at Pride48.com, either under shows or under the, the events schedule. And that was really, to me, fantastic. I mean, I, I was waiting for somebody else who was going to be serious, and boy, did Scotty ever, ever deliver. Sunday was the last day, and on that day, it began with Ding DeBell, two of, my, two of my favorite people that I met for the first time because they were unable to attend in 2015. Uh, the Scooter Diaries morphed into a little bit of a Scooter Diaries slash North and South of Things reunion. I've mentioned the North and South of Things podcast before. George, George in Atlanta and um, Mark in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And I really love the podcast. Understand why it's not, you know, why it hasn't carried on, carried forward, but really enjoyed it. Had to miss just a little bit because the next show was Inappropriate Conversations. And again, that went pretty well. I mentioned in the recording of the podcast that Scooter Diaries tends to be a one-person show. Uh, after Inappropriate Conversations was Geeky Gay. That's a personal journal podcast. Almost most of the time, a one-person show. There was a series of one-person shows together dealing with kind of, well, how do you manage that in this sort of live format? 
Uh, Mark on Scooter Diaries managed it by actually streaming in George for a part of his show. And Adam on Geeky Gay had a panel, which is really nice. After that, the the event, just like the last time in Las Vegas, this New Orleans event, things started to move pretty quickly. The pace seems mentally to accelerate, even though I know it doesn't. It's still the same sort of 55-minute blocks with five-minute interstitials. But Brain Dead Podcast, Blind Time, the next thing you know, it's the closing show. It just stacked up really fast. And I knew at the end of Sunday night, as it's always always has been true, always will be true for these things, that there's a certain how do I pack up kind of a challenge that you kind of kind of have to manage. And I was a little bit in the back of my mind thinking about hey, going to the airport first thing the next morning. Uh, how can we keep both of these bags underweight? How do we manage to distribute things we picked up, not just from the New Orleans part of our, our vacation, but from the New England part that preceded it? There was a lot to think about, but it's always about trying to finish up strong, too. Making sure that you're saying goodbye to people who are going before you leave, who aren't going to be around the next morning, which we left early enough that we didn't expect to really see anybody the next morning. In fact, in the uh, Inappropriate Conversations 212, there's a moment where a couple of people had to leave right in the middle of my show, and I was glad that we were able to, to carve out time for that and to make sure everyone was totally comfortable saying goodbye to those folks, because it really is, at the end of the day, all about the people. My wife and I, Nicole, my guest host, my wife's friend, and a couple of other folks, uh, went out after that. Instead of participating in the planned Killers and Thrillers ghost tour, which I'm going to say did sound interesting. However, it was going to be a walking tour, and I wasn't sure how much um, either my wife's knees or my knees were going to feel good about that. So we opted out of that, and instead we we took an Uber to a nice restaurant, ate a meal, and my wife's kind of one of her thoughts was, we have some people in this group, Tim, in the group, who knew enough about drag, could speak with some authority about it, that maybe there would be as some sort of an authentic drag show. She asked him, I think, during one of the breaks, if he thought that there was going to be an, an authentic drag show. And he said, no, it's not weather, it's which one, you know, and uh, opening up a, a just a basic search for that and the bubble map sort of, you know, provides options. Let's put it that way. Leveraging his expertise and experience, we went with him. And that was kind of the last kind of big event of the night. It was probably the... uh closest I got to experiencing any of the sort of revelry that a lot of the other participants do. Because a drag show is a little bit of a different animal. Um, you get a wide-ranging group of people, everything from your bachelorette party vibe to um, obviously a, a gay and lesbian vibe to uh, I felt like kind of the odd, the odd duck a little bit. And to be fair, that wasn't an unusual feeling. For probably at least the first day or so of the event, it kind of dawned on me that I was the only straight male in attendance that I was aware of. Now, later on, we got another arrival. One of the uh, hosts of one of the podcasts, podcast I introduced, as a matter of fact, brought her husband with her. He doesn't like being on the microphone. He, he's not a podcaster. So he was also there as somebody who was, you know, an ally. The majority of the allies that attended this time, and frankly, probably the last time I attended, female. Because... Baseline homophobia being what it is, it's less problematic. It seems less controversial to the quote unquote the world out there. If you are uh, a gay lesbian ally who's female, than if you're male. So in some ways, a little bit of little bit of an odd duck. And I was also perhaps maybe one of the very few straight men 
in attendance at the two different sort of drag shows we tried to hit in that section of, uh, of downtown New Orleans. And on some level, being trained as a reporter, I guess I just kind of go into this sort of observation mode. There, there's a part of me that I honestly could probably say is attending something that is new and different and clearly not necessarily made for me as if I'm going to be writing a story about it when I get back to the office. <laughs> now, that's crazy because I haven't functioned as a reporter in any meaningful way for three decades. I have no interest in beginning to function that way again. And uh, so it's not a serious perspective, but it's sort of like that mode that you kind of go into. And maybe there's a DJ mode as well, even though I've never really done that job either. But in this case, I, I become maybe somewhat of a kind of a keen observer and try to make connections and try to find my place and my understanding. And, and two things dawned on me right off the bat. I left the music business as a music analyst and a stores analyst and before that as a stores manager in uh, 1999. And because of maybe 10 years of always being given the music and having sort of a job expectation that you were aware of and conversant with new music, that frankly, there's a piece of my music knowledge that kind of falls off a cliff somewhere around 1999 or 2000. It dawned on me that there were very few songs that were being danced to or lip synced or performed in some other way that I had on my phone. I carry something like 20,000 songs with me at all times. I My phone exists to carry music. main reason I left an Apple device and moved to an Android device was the potential capacity to store more music. I'm also not necessarily a streaming Spotify, Apple Music kind of a guy. I like picking and curating and owning and controlling. And, and I like the notion that it's my file and that I've chosen it. So... For that reason, it was kind of stunning to me that I wasn't hearing anybody, you know, perform to anything that I actually owned. And then in a lot of cases, I wasn't familiar with the songs at all, or at least not as familiar as I could have been. I was perhaps, as somebody who is, has a reputation, rightfully so, I guess, for music knowledge, I might have been the least musically informed person in the room, especially at the first club we went to. I got, not long after arriving, to opening up the Shazam app so that I could at least know early on, well, what am I dealing with? Is this Kelly Clarkson? Is this Christina Aguilera? What am I dealing with? Because in a lot of cases, I honestly didn't know. We had, in many cases, suddenly gone, not just from the proud-to-know-you side of things, to the beyond Superdome side of things, because this was about as far away from the Superdome, from the Holiday Inn Superdome, as I'd gone during the trip. The last place that we visited before returning home to figure out how to pack for uh, for a flight back was crowded enough that we ended up on the balcony looking down at the performers. And one of the performers, the first thought, again, is trying to make connections, trying to find my bearings, uh, was a was a black woman, as I now know, a black trans woman, because it was clear from her outfits and her performance that uh, some of that was the real deal. That you, you couldn't fake breasts in the outfit that she was in, per se. And... Uh, her name, I believe, was Kiki Rodriguez. I'm gonna, I'm going off memory here and trying to guess, but my first thought was that she, at least from my angle, she bore something of a resemblance to the actress, comedian, and singer Yvette Nicole Brown. Now, Yvette Nicole Brown's career never got to the point of us having a song or single that we would associate with her as the named artist. She was part of the East Coast family 
discovered for a while and participating in that group through uh, Belle Biv DeVoe, Michael Bivens, Boyz II Men, that whole, well, literally the East Coast family group of recordings. So it's not like Yvette Nicole Brown doesn't have any credits to her as a singer, but not famous enough that you'd have somebody performing drag to them. But whether it was the color of skin, the shape of head, the hairstyle, whatever, my first thought was this person could really pull off a very convincing Yvette Nicole Brown if she wanted to. But then I also realized that meant that I might be one of the very few people in the audience who would think that'd be a good idea. Having said that, my experience at Pride 48 in New Orleans being so good and so solid that I won't hesitate to repeat it, I also won't hesitate to consider once again inappropriate conversations in a live one-hour format, and maybe my first idea will make sense in the future as the next idea, if someone like uh, Babalu needs a microphone and a context for his own thoughts. We'll see what comes. But for now, I'll leave this proud to know you three with the connection, the odd, just out of nowhere connection I made to an actress that I've admired for years but never really watched a ton of her work. And this being almost a strictly visual kind of cue to our different drummer. Using Wikipedia as a source, Yvette Nicole Brown is an American actress, voice actress, and comedian. As I mentioned in uh, the lead-in, she also has singing to her, her credits, if you look deeply enough into song credit. Brown has appeared in numerous commercials, television shows, and films throughout her career. She starred as Shirley Bennett on the NBC comedy series Community. She had a recurring role on the Nickelodeon sitcom Drake and Josh, and voiced the character of Cookie in the American-Canadian animated series Pound Puppies. She also more recently starred as Danny in the 2015 version of The Odd Couple on CBS. Uh, the Obviously, there's going to be a lot more credits listed for her, and I could go on to some of the biographical material, but I really have a strong intention here of pointing anybody who has any interest in Yvette Nicole Brown to a podcast. Why not? This is an episode looking back at a podcasting expo. I've outed myself as a podcasting fan, and I did encounter Yvette Nicole Brown through that means. Now, I recognized her as an actress in movies that I hadn't seen and shows I didn't really watch, and maybe even realized that small bit parts in movies like The Island, the cloning um, adventure show um, with Scarlett Johansson and Ewan McGregor in it, that she has a role in that. So I probably have seen her in some movies. I have recently, though, and very recently, obtained through a library book sale the first season of, of Community in its entirety, sort of a DVD box set of Community. I do intend to watch it. I kind of missed it when it first came out. I think it was probably head-to-head against something that I preferred to watch instead, and I wasn't maybe that aggressive about primetime network shows on my DVR, per se, for me, most of the time, my DVR is going to be sports-related. Uh, I, I, not exclusively that, but in minutes, surely I record more sports than anything else, if I were guessing. So no, my encounter with, with Nicole Brown really wasn't from the East Coast Family CD released uh, around the time Boys to Men broke big, and it wasn't from watching 
Drake and Josh with my kids or from Community as a sitcom. It was from the JV Club podcast on the Nerdist Network. Now, it's interesting to me that despite the fact that I very much enjoy that podcast, and that podcast has brought me uh, into a, an awareness of a lot more people. I mean, I knew who Christina Hendricks was, and that was the very first show. And the uh, the podcast establishes a very particular pattern, and it's got a vibe. It's a lot about looking back and remembering things in high school. So if you're looking for a connection to the lead-in here, and recollections of high school, and whether my experiences should be reconsidered, and whether we're not being fair to Dr. Ford, or even, for that matter, Brett Kavanaugh, by by being dismissive about high school as being an important point of uh, memories and of uh, the beginnings of personal development, whether they be moral or ethical or otherwise. The JV Club taps into this because most of the focus is asking people that are either her friends or people who have appeared on television or in movies to remember those days and to kind of recall that and, and bring the experience you know, from there to here. I was listening to the Yvette Nicole Brown episode, uh, happy because I knew who she was. That was one of the episodes where the person wasn't a, a complete mystery to me because they came from a show I don't watch or they were a, a voice actor on something that Janet Varney was a voice actor in. So I did, couldn't even possibly connect face to voice if I wanted to. But then hearing very quickly that she grew up in the same part of Ohio, or at least not far from the same part of Ohio, that I've lived in for more than just a few years. So there's an Ohio connection. And there also quickly was revealed to be a faith connection. So here is somebody who has made it her mission. She's got a kind of a, a side project going on right now that's essentially kind of a mission of kindness concept. And if you follow her on Twitter, which I do, it's kind of pretty obvious that... Um, she is trying to be a, a positive voice, but a positive voice that's not Pollyanna. She is very willing to defend herself, very willing to criticize nonsense when she hears, sees, and encounters it. And I, I really appreciate that. But her website, uh, com, among things that it lists as, as her bona fides, I suppose, would be uh, her role in the past as an actress or as a host, stepping into shows like The Talking Dead, for example. Or, as a champion of kindness. I'm going to let her website speak for itself on this champion of kindness concept. She has got a uh, Why Not Be You campaign, the letter Y, not B campaign, that I think is going to be tied into that. And I'm excited to see how that's going to develop over time. She's looked at the last, say, two, two and a half years in our culture, particularly through the politics, rightly decided that there's a lot of negative influence there that needs to be arrested and, and fixed. And she may be on the verge of figuring out exactly what she's going to do about it. But in a different drummer segment, I think it's probably important to let her have her own voice if I can, which I can because I'm going to quote the 25th episode of the JV Club, Janet Varney's you know, a podcast and her interview with Yvette Nicole Brown, because it is still one of the best podcast episodes that I've ever heard in my life. And it has made me a fan of this particular actress, even though so far I have perhaps to my shame consumed far too little of her work. I intend to correct that, but uh, network sitcoms are rarely high on my list of things to do. I find a few that I like and I stick with them and I'm more likely to watch the reruns than the new stuff. That's on me. But in the meantime, anybody who's familiar with what Inappropriate Conversations is about on the faith and religion and spirituality side might find some familiar thoughts and ideas coming from, from Yvette. 
And she's just way more positive about it than I could ever dream to be. You know, when you have that Bernie thing in your stomach, like you can tell if you're a person of faith at all, if you believe that there's something guiding your life in any way, I know the difference when it's an Yvette idea and when it's a God idea. Hmm. My idea is flimsy, <laughs> flimsy at best. You know, I think I'll go and get a burger at two o'clock in the morning. That's not going to end well, Yvette. That's an Yvette idea. Are you saying God's not telling you to <laughs> no, go get the burger? No, he doesn't burger, want me there. He did, my belly yeah. does not want it. He doesn't want yeah. it for me. It's my idea. Yeah. But when it's something that it's something that he's called me to, I can feel in my spirit because it's scary, but I feel peace about it. That's how I always know it's God. I'm so envious of Come that. Come on. But you can, it's, it's available to you too. It's, yeah. it's that the thing is, this is what one of my friends said. My friend Janine says this about God. She says, God is a gentleman. He's never going to force anything on you. So being a gentleman, he makes suggestions. Hey, Janet, how about we do this? You just have to be paying and it, attention. Right. And it might be in a tone where it's very low. And if you got all this going on, ah, you don't hear that kind. Well, you know, why don't we, why don't we go to the left here and try this instead? Yeah. Right. So yeah. It's, a, it's a very gentle, respectful way that he suggests things to us. And then we have to stop and think about it. If I do this, how do I feel about this? This is how I check, check in with myself and check in with God. When I make a decision, if there's peace about it, even if it's something I don't want to do, if there's peace about it, then I go, Oh, doggone it. I got to do it. Yeah. Right. If it's something that seems good, but there's chaos and confusion around it. I know when God is speaking, he doesn't speak to me in chaos and confusion. He speaks to me in peace and calmness. Um, there's always a pathway of peace, even in the midst of a storm, there's a pathway of peace for me. So my move to LA, not having money, not knowing anybody, not only having a place to stay for three days, that's chaos and confusion around me. But the path in front of me, as in packing my bags, getting to the airport, getting on the plane, I was as smooth. I was as smooth and clear and crystal clear as just a, 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 a cool river. It was just no stress about it at all, no fear at all. And I mm. knew it was what I was supposed to do. And it was very hard the first year or so that I was here. I was sleeping on people's couches, and I didn't have a car for like two years. I was out here, so I was riding the bus from like oh, Lord, Pasadena Lord. to L.A. Oh, my for gosh. work. But it, for me, every time I got on that bus, it was like I used to tell myself this. I have a hundred times to ride this bus before I get a car. I would just make up some arbitrary number. So when I got on the bus, I check it off. 99. <laughs> 98. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's like a little game that you play with yourself. When I started acting, I would tell myself it takes a hundred no's to get a yes. So when I would audition and they would say, no, thank you. I go 99. 98. God, this you know, is so right? inspiring. I just, I, it, I, this is what I think. Oh man. I hope you guys are getting as much out of this as I am. I also hope you take the inspiration from it and the same level of enthusiasm that Janet Varney is expressing in in the interview. There was more to it both before and after. Again, one of my favorite podcasts of all time, certainly maybe my favorite podcast interview of all time. And for whatever reason, Yvette Nicole Brown, perhaps even somewhat subconsciously, has always been important enough to me that I saw somebody in New Orleans that reminded me of her. And probably two personalities that couldn't be further apart, if you think about it. And yet, there it is. The Lord works in mysterious ways. That might be a good way to sum up Yvette's perspective on things, and mine as well. I never felt at any point uncomfortable, or in any danger, or like I was doing anything that was that was wrong or problematic by attending either one of these Pride 48 events. And uh, for that reason, if none else... I intend to do it again. Yvette, 
If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Inappropriateconversations.org is where I post the shows, both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth. Show notes and comments are there as well. I also have uh, got on my list of things to do, and I know I've been dropping the ball, posting sound clips from more and more of the previous episodes of both these podcasts on SoundCloud, where I can be found at IC underscore Greg. It's a good way of giving someone a shortcut into saying, do I want to spend that many more minutes with this particular topic or question? Finally, as always, you can find Inappropriate Conversations wherever you find podcasts, uh, Apple, for example, Stitcher for another, both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth share the same feed. And that includes Pride48.com, where there's a link to the inappropriateconversations.org page and RSS feed. I'm going to give the last thought in this show to TJ from Greetings from Nowhere. Obviously, Greetings from Nowhere, one of my favorite podcasts. Um, it was the number one reason why Nicole you know, jumped so quickly into my mind from a co-hosting perspective. I was listening to some of the promo and prep work for a podcast that preceded the June live streaming event, a podcast montage episode. And I included some of the clips of the time that I did appear as a guest on Greetings from Nowhere, a two-part episode, because I tend to go on and on and on. Gab has been one of my nicknames, fair to say. But I realized that that particular recording was just me and Christina. Christina needed someone to help join her because Nicole was unavailable. And so I felt like it needed to be paid for that there'd be some Greg and Nicole time to balance it out. There hasn't been any Greg and TJ time yet either. So that's a thought in the back of my head for a future Pride 48 event. We will see. But from the audience, TJ raised one of the thoughts that I think I like the best from the live recording uh, that's up as a podcast in episode 212. Nicole was talking about kind of what a true Christian perspective is, what it means to be a Christ follower, what Jesus taught. And in a political context, TJ summed it up perfectly with this quote. And I'll end here. Jesus doesn't gerrymander. Thanks for listening. show is a proud member of the Pride 48 Podcasting Network. 
Check out other great podcasts at pride48.com slash shows. 